Hi, it's Mike. Could you go to, say, Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you listen? Those are two places to listen. And give us a review. And in fact, why don't you take the spirit of that review and maybe tell a friend about the gist, follow the gist. All these things really help. Help me help you help me. Thank you. Hi, it's Mike. It's Saturday, and this is The Saturday Show. I know you appreciate me taking those two disparate facts and uniting them into one, thereby synthesizing pieces of information into meaning. That's what I do all week and here on The Saturday Show. On The Saturday Show, I take one from the vaults and one from the week. And the segment this week that I'm going to replay is something I talked about on Monday, all the things I'm not going to talk about. All the news events I'm not going to follow and don't want to follow or for different reasons find that I'll outsource my coverage to others. This could change. And I also said, if you have a real great angle on something like AI, let me know. I don't know if the coronation is going to get there. So I give you once again my thoughts on the things I'm trying not to think that much about, the things I'm not going to cover, which I covered on Monday and I'm covering today. Perhaps I could be described as not being totally accurate in saying I won't cover them. And then the one from the vaults is an interview I did March 2019 with Dan Reed. He directed a documentary for HBO called Leaving Neverland, which is about Michael Jackson's then young accusers. I air this because on Friday I talked to Leon Nafak, who has an excellent documentary podcast out about Michael Jackson uh, on Audible and from Wondery. And I referenced that, you know, I didn't get, I've never gotten more criticism than I did for the interview with Dan Reed, but I think it was a good interview. I just think Michael Jackson, let us call them truthers, didn't want to hear it and don't want to hear it. The tone, by the way, of Leon's documentary uh, that he did along with Jay Smooth is that, yeah, you have to grapple with the very strong evidence that Michael Jackson abused young boys. And this is I think the strongest presentation of the evidence was the HBO documentary. And this is my interview with that director. I don't know if you could say enjoy, but I do beseech you to listen. Wade Robson and James Safechuck were two talented young boys who came to the attention and then under the spell of Michael Jackson. As a 7-year-old and 11-year-old, they were each showered with Michael Jackson's approval, given essentially careers by him as performers, and they were also repeatedly raped by him. One describes his relationship with Jackson as that of man and wife. He was 11 years old at the time. Leaving Neverland is the two-part documentary on HBO detailing the stories of these two men and their relationship with perhaps the most famous man in the world at the time. Dan Reed is the director of that documentary. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Were you writing a wrong or explaining a phenomenon? Um, a little bit of both. I think explaining the phenomenon is really important because people don't understand um, child sexual abuse very well and I certainly didn't before I began this um, and therefore don't really understand the things that happened in this story because you can only really get why Wade Robson went from you know enthusiastically defending Michael Jackson on the witness stand in 2005 to where he is today right um, so writing a wrong the wrong, well the wrong that was done to these little boys um, hopefully we can write it to some extent well Jackson's dead so he can't be put on trial what first what was the spark at first? Like, I can't believe this, or how did this happen? 
Well, at first there was no this because I didn't know whether to believe their story or not. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what draws me into any story is um, taking people inside a thing that they think they know. Yes. And revealing the complexity of human behavior because, you know, I think that's what long form documentary does. It gives you space to go, yes, this is true. And the opposite is also true. And people are complicated and they do weird things. And it's not always immediately obvious why they do things. It's not black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was this seemed to be like one of those stories. So at the outset, I had no special interest in Jackson. This project came about in a kind of random way. And the timing is quite random. I wish I could say I'd set out to make a big difference in the Me Too movement. And right. All, but I, I but ha- so how did it come about randomly? It came about through a casual conversation with a Channel 4 executive in the UK um, and we were talking about what, what are the big stories out there that are slightly unresolved or that people don't quite know the inside of. And, uh, and so I did some, I commissioned someone to do some research and they came up with this, uh, I think it was like a, a forum page that mm-hmm. had a, a reference to these two guys I'd never heard of, Wade Robson and James Safechuck, who seemed to be wanting to tell a story of child sexual abuse about their relationship with Michael Jackson. And I was like, oh, that's weird. You see these names on a piece of paper and there is some information that maybe they want to talk. How do you go about pursuing that? Well, the information was that they they were going public because they were litigating. Now, um, I had no idea if they'd want to talk to me or not. So I contacted their lawyers and, you know, long story short, I ended up in a meeting with their lawyers in Los Angeles. We talk and um, they clearly decided that I was, uh, that my track record warranted, you know, having a meeting with Wade and James and that's what happened. And then, you know. They agreed to be interviewed. Before you even turn the camera on, how many meetings do you have with James and Wade, and what are they like? I have one meeting. Really? Yeah, with Wade and James separately, because they're not allowed to have any contact. And they live, you know, many hours apart. James I met for dinner with his wife. He seemed sensitive, vulnerable, sincere. Yeah. And then I went, I flew to Hawaii to meet Wade, and we had lunch. And he seemed very poised, thoughtful asked me some good questions about my intentions. Yeah. And um, and we decided to go ahead. One meeting. One meeting, each. yeah. Who'd you, who'd you film first? I filmed Wade first for three days. So in between the days of shooting with Wade, did he change from day to day? No. No, he didn't. Um, he grew more tired. Yeah. <laughs> we all did. What the film's about, what the film's about is two, the, the, the reckoning. You mm-hmm. know? It's two families coming to terms with what happened to their sons. And a big part of understanding that, you know, so why the silence? Why did the sons keep silent for so long? Why did they keep the secret? And, um, you know, the key really is is to be able to explain why Wade gave false witness on, you know, and perjured himself on the witness stand. And the reason for that, of course, is to do with how survivors of sexual abuse experience that and how they keep a secret and how they form a deep attachment sometimes with uh, the abuser and how that attachment persists then into adult life. Um, what was your strategy going in about how to lay out what happened, when to bring up the most sensitive materials? How, how are you going to do it? I, I said, Let, let's go through this chronologically. And that had a big impact on, on Wade as it happened because, you know, you start laying out your whole life. It's a powerful thing to do. It's very simple. Had he done that? Had he done that in no, therapy or no, to anyone? No, he'd never no. done it before. And then I think we said, when it comes to the sex, we can't draw a veil. Mm-hmm. So we have to go there. We have to talk about the sexual acts that happened. Yes. Uh, because Michael Jackson 
represented himself as someone who had an innocent interest in children but was intimate with them and close to them and physically affectionate and all that. And we had to make very clear, if that was the case, that, um, that it, this was sex, the kind of thing grown-ups do. Did you always know that that would be in the final cut? Yeah. As explicit as it could be. Yeah, because if, if if we don't go there, if we don't say, look, this is sex, people, mm-hmm. um, then we don't have a film because there's nothing wrong with, you know, affectionate physical contact, right, if it's not sex. Or even beyond that, words that allied the actual graphic nature of the act that make it clear that itself wouldn't be sufficient for your purposes to say that we had oral sex mm. as opposed to really explicitly talking about body parts mm. and so forth. I think that, you know, testimony, when it's delivered in a very present way, when the person is present in the moment that they're describing, is so much more powerful than simply information delivered, right? And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be kind of present in the room when, I mean, awful as it sounds, when this was taking place, the sexual... Contact is described with great dignity. It's described quite clinically, but you yes. are kind of present as it's as it, you you feel present as it's happening. And and uh, and I wanted people to be confronted with the horror of what it means for a seven year old child to be preyed upon by a pedophile. With that, so that was with Wade. With James, um, in the documentary, so there's very explicit and graphic details of body parts and actions. But then there is an almost unrelenting recounting of all the places where they had sex. And I suppose, well, you tell me, does, is that for the same purpose, to lay it out clearly so you can't look away? That took me by surprise. I mean, my jaw hit the floor. Yeah. We were talking about Neverland, and and, and it is so remote. And I remember driving there and thinking, oh, okay. So he really, he went beyond the reach of anyone Mm -hmm. and he established his own little domain that he could control. As someone put it, I think I didn't use this in the film, but I think James's mother said it was a pedophile paradise. Yeah. So so Wade is describing uh, his time at Neverland and the wonders of Neverland. And, And then he begins to describe almost like a journey through each of the attractions and each of the locations in Neverland that Michael created. And on each stop in that journey, there is a bed and there is sex. Mm-hmm. And he carried, and, and you know, the first three or four, I thought, wow, that that's that's heavy. And then he went on and on and on. And I don't know, I haven't counted them, but there's like a dozen stops in that horrific journey. I'm going to read to you uh, a criticism of the film by one of my colleagues here, Christina Cotarucci, and I think it's fair. I don't know that I necessarily agree with it, but I think it's fair and I'd like your answer. The documentary hobbles its chances to convince skeptics that these men are telling the truth. The misstep does a grave disservice to both men. Leaving Neverland could have helped viewers understand the complexity by asking Robson and Safe Chuck a few pointed questions about why they've tried multiple times to get money from the Jackson estate. Yeah, I mean, I disagree. The, I think you only feel the absence of what she's describing if you have been poisoned, if the well of your mind has been poisoned by the, the rhetoric of the estate. Mm-hmm. So the, the estate's rhetoric and the Jackson family's rhetoric, and this has been the case for the last two decades whenever any sexual um, abuse allegations have popped up, is it's all about the money, mm-hmm. it's all they want the money, and it's their refrain. And of course, in many ways, it is about money, but it's about the Jacksons' money and they, their desire to hang on to it and to retain the value of their asset, which is, of course, Jackson catalog and his reputation. Um, 
think about it for a second. The justice system, the courts, is that not where you go to get justice when you have been wronged? Is that not the proper way to seek redress? Mm-hmm. I mean, if someone stabs you in the street, you don't write a novel about it. Right. These men were raped. Rape is a crime. And, and this is the, the terrifying thing and the, and, and, and the challenge that people face when they want to bring child sexual abuse to light and, and the perpetrator is still alive, is they have to go to court and it's their word against their abuser's word very often. But in this case, we have a massive evidence that, um, you know, Wade and James did have a relationship with Jackson, you know. Oh, yeah. We know that. We have documentary evidence of that. That they did spend many nights in bed with him and no one can test that. So, mm, you know, do we believe their allegations about what happened in that bed at night? Well, I do. Is the Michael Jackson estate truly powerful? You get different impressions. He has this large catalog that obviously gives him a lot of money, and yet Neverland's been on the market and declining in value. Are they really a behemoth to worry about? Well, they've got some tasty lawyers, haven't they? They do. Yeah. Ones whose names I know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the estate is both powerful in this and powerless. Uh, they're powerful because they can make a lot of noise and can launch a lot of lawsuits and they can do all that. But they're powerless to present any real evidence against what Wade and James are saying. So, you know, the, the, they're trying to present um, Wade as a liar and they're saying he's a perjurer, which is kind of bizarre because either he's a perjurer or he was telling the truth at right. the trial, right? Right. They can't have it both ways. Um, if he's a perjurer, he's a perjurer their case then in this, Jackson in this was matter. a rapist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so um, you know, and... and right, the, right, it's like the old line, were you lying then or lying yeah. now? His answer, I was lying then. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, so um, I think there's a much bigger point in this, which is that in order to understand why Wade Robson lied on the witness stand, you have to learn something about child sexual abuse. And that, for me, is the big thing about this and that, about this film, and that's our big opportunity. And the reason really why I think this film is precious to me and, and is, it was an important film to make. I never set out to topple Michael Jackson or to detract from his glory as an amazing entertainer. And I, that's of no interest to me at all. I don't care whether people continue listening to his music or not. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. I really don't care. Right. People make their own minds up. I have no guidance at all for anyone. The only guidance I have is please listen to Wade and James's stories. And please, when you watch this four-hour film, please understand or please open your mind to this picture of how child sexual abuse unfolds in later life. It's not a simple case of a, ba- a, man, did the mummy a, ba- a man did a bad thing to me and running to mummy or to the police. Kids don't do that when they've been molested. They don't do that. It just doesn't happen. Because the person doing the molesting is often a friend or a trusted uncle or a and in this whatever. And in this case, someone who worked hard to entangle himself in the lives of these families and make them dependent mm-hmm. on him. And, and there are analogies to many molestation situations in terms of that. I want to ask about the mothers, specifically the mothers. As far as Wade's mother, Joy, goes... Is there an element of willful blindness? The, 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 his father said, I can't believe you're staying in California, and he leaves the family at that point uh, distraught. There are so many signs, all the signs of sleeping in the bed with a grown man, and to the point where Safechuck's mother exults when Michael Jackson dies, whereas Robson Grieves. Well, the, the difference uh, at that point, there's a kind of they're in different situations. The two mums in 2009. Yeah. So Stephanie Safechuck has already learned that 
to quote right. James, Michael wasn't a good man. Yes. And so she she knows mm-hmm. by that time, and that's why she's jubilant when he dies. Um, and Joy is still in the dark, and she doesn't know, and she's grief stricken when you know. And, and Wade was grief stricken. Let's you know, there's, make no mistake. No one is saying that Wade wasn't upset. No one was saying that he didn't want to go to the memorial service. No right. one is saying that right. he didn't. He lost, you know, his great friend, his mentor, the man who had a sexual relationship with him for seven years. You know, that creates a deep attachment. So, um, yeah, you know, Wade was devastated. So, yeah, so Stephanie reacts differently because she already knows something. Joy Robson was ambitious for her son, and rightly so. He's a bit of a genius, you know, Mm -hmm. dancing and choreography, and he's an incredible dancer. I've watched him quite a bit, and and he was choreographing Britney Britney Spears' world tour at the age of 14 and NSYNC at the age of 16, and this guy was a prodigy, you know. So um, Joy gambled on her son's career, and she... You know, it paid off, but there was a terrible price to pay, and that's not a price that she was aware of. The opportunity and the dazzle of Michael may have, well, did make her blind, didn't it? Yeah. The reaction has been gratifying to you. Do you think it's been received in the way that you would have liked it to be received? It's been incredible. It's been astonishing. I We never expected it to be received this well. Well, um, I mean, he's the biggest guy in the world, and you're yeah. saying some truths that were long suspected, and it seems fairly buttoned down to me. So mm. I would think it would have made a bit of a splash. Yeah. I mean, Sundance was amazing because it premiered at Sundance in January. And, you know, standing ovations and, and on both screenings. There were only two screenings. And that, that, that was life-changing for Wade and James because... They were used to people throwing shit at them, and suddenly it was like, wow, mm. we're believed, and this is it was incredible validation. And I think they've gone from kind of strength to strength since then. I hope that some good will come out of the film in the, in the, in the shape of, you know, people feeling able to break their silence if they're victims of child sexual abuse. And, you know, I think this is a document and a, va- a really good, forget Michael Jackson, this is a really great, I think, detailed and thorough account of the grooming of two families by a sexual predator. Right. And that's where it transcends just the mm. very, very bizarre, uh, sui generis story and person of Michael Jackson. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so I keep coming back to this. This was never for me about, you know, taking aim at Michael Jackson or his legacy or anything like that. And that's why I don't care whether people listen to his music or not. This was about, and this is what I do. I tell stories yeah. about things that are complicated. Yeah. And things that people think they know about, like child sexual abuse, but they don't really know about at all. And there's a valuable story to be told and one that touches a lot of people. Dan Reed is the director of Leaving Neverland on HBO here in the US, Channel 4 in the UK. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. And now the spiel. You generally know what I'm interested in talking about on The Gist because I talk about it on The Gist. That's what we who play poker like to call a tell. But it's important for you to know what I'm not that interested in talking about, and sometimes for different reasons. And the biggest reasons I'm not interested in talking about something are they're not important, or I can't add anything new, or the add chicken to salad for $4.99 rule, which is in America, never pay to add chicken to anything. There's chicken included with almost everything. So the number, I don't know, what is this, five issue I'm least interested in talking about? King, oh, a king, we have a 
king. Well, we don't have a king. They have a king. And isn't he magisterial? Yeah, sure, whatever. I don't hate the Brits for their monarch or that they have one, but some Brits do. CNN, which of course had all the coronation coverage that an archbishop can stomach, noted that, quote, London's Metropolitan Police said it made 52 arrests during the coronation of King Charles III as the coronation drew demonstrators with protesters wearing yellow shirts, booing and shouting, not my king, throughout the morning. Not my king! Not my king! Republic, Britain's largest anti-monarchy group, told CNN that police, without providing any reason, arrested organizers of the anti-monarchy protest. The protesters were all, by the way, released later that day, reportedly, and the charges they faced include a fray, a fray. I shall now quote from Merriam-Webster. The meaning of a fray is a fray. Yes, a brawl. I am a gog and a titter, as was Twitter, over the affray charges. But I gotta say, R.E. affray, you know, it's not right to arrest protesters. Human Rights Watch UK called it something you'd expect to see in Moscow, not the UK. All right, but maybe the consequences might be different in Moscow. If you compare those protesters with all the bright signs against the king and the loud voices yelling, not my king, outside this coronation, compare them to everyone who's ever voiced such sentiments when a king was getting coronated, gotta say these guys got off easy. Are the charges particularly worrisome? Well, I worry some, but do I worry lots? I'm afraid not. Also, Camilla, Queen Camilla, wasn't wearing her crown, it was wearing her. Next item I'm not interested in, the writer strike. Oh, don't get me wrong, I like writing, I like watching. I like watching as much as the next guy. Checks on the average amount of TV the next guy watches three hours plus a day per American. Okay, I'm about, I don't know, a quarter to a fifth as much into TV watching as the next guy, but a lot of it is good. I want the writers to get their fair share. I don't side with the owners of the streaming services, but I can't be more invested with the story of the people who wrote Ted Lasso than I am with Ted Lasso, and I'm not invested with Ted Lasso. Succession's really good though, but those guys are all paid up. I have writer friends who say, you know what? Check in around late June. That's an inflection point. June 30th, a big contract with the Directors Guild and SAG after that expires then. There's not so much incentive for either side to move then. So I understand the issues. 11,500 writers on strike. I do want those guys to earn a good living. The ways that TV is distributed and who gets paid, that's all changing. Not for good unless the writers do something about it. So yes, I'd like the 11,500 to get paid well, just like I'd like the 3.5 million truck drivers who could be put out of business thanks to a technology to get paid well. That technology is self-driving cars, but it brings me to AI. Am I worried about AI? I am worried. Sure. Am I interested in the forms the worry is taking? Not much in hearing other people's worries. Not that they're wrong. There's something to worry about. We just don't know what exactly. Social media, right? That wound up being a mess. Some people in the beginning said it might be a mess. But who got the exact nature of the mess right? Pretty much no one. If the analysis is correct, and most people are predicting AI will cause chaos, well, how are you going to get an orderly diagnosis of the form the chaos will take? 
Also, it's one of those things where my worrying about it inaccurately doesn't correlate to my being able to do anything about it. If I was sure there would be a nightmare or a specific kind of nightmare, I'd tell you what there was, but it's all uncertain. Whenever I see an AI interview or a let's worry about AI type interview pop up in my newsfeed or my podcast feed, I'm like, eh, I'm going to pass on this one. And I, I give the same offer to you. I shall not burden you with random free floating, probably more correct than incorrect, but unspecific worries about AI. If you hear anything good, though, let me know about what I should worry about specifically. Last, okay, so remember in the beginning I said fifth least thing I was worried about? It's probably, it should have been fourth, so I'm worried about getting the order of my list right. But last but least, there is no way to protect um, our financial system and our economy other than Congress doing its job and raising the debt ceiling and enabling us to pay our bills. I'm not that worried about the debt ceiling crisis. I'm against it. This is sort of the opposite of the AI worry. AI is all potential damage, some of which will almost definitely happen, but we're not sure exactly what the impact would be. The debt ceiling, we're pretty sure it won't happen, as in default won't happen, but if it were, then we're all sure of what the disaster would be. It would be quite profound. I am not blasé about the debt ceiling. It is nonsense to hold us hostage with the debt ceiling. I also think that too much debt is something to address. This is not the way to address it. And I do not think, I reject the idea, well, if good people do nothing, we'll be fine. We won't be fine, but we've got the people who are worried about it on the job, and they're worried about it quite constructively. I'm 90-something percent sure there will be a deal. I can't tell you what that deal will be, but neither can anyone else. So what I don't do, and I'm not going to ask you to do, is to follow every development or long-shot parliamentary maneuver that has less of a chance than Cousin Greg winding up atop the Game of Thrones. I have better things to fret over, things like AI eliminating writing jobs, concocting a sequel to King Ralph that stars Camilla's crown as a sentient alien intent on controlling world affairs. And I'm sure that will get a frave reviews. And that was it. That was Saturday and that was the Saturday show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. And we will talk to you on Monday.